This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jesse Zarley, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Karen Rosenblatt about her new book, The Science and Politics of Race in Mexico and the United States, 1910 to 1950, the winner of the 2019 Prose Award in North American and U.S. History from the Association of American Publishers. It was published in 2018 by UNC Press. Karen is professor of history at the University of Maryland College Park and is the author of Gendered Compromises, Political Cultures and the State in Chile, 1920 to 1950, and a co-editor, along with Anne McPherson and Nancy Applebaum, of Race and Nation in Modern Latin America, also published by UNC. Karen Rosenblatt, welcome to the show. Hi, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. So, Karen... I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, where you got your PhD, and what brought you to study Latin American history. Well, like many people, my own history is part of why I decided to, decided to study history. Uh, my family is from Chile. I came to the United States when I was very young, three, four years old. Uh, but I maintained contact with my family in Latin America. and. I studied Latin American history as an undergraduate, then went on to do a PhD in Latin American history at the University of Wisconsin, where my mentor was Florencia Mallon, and I also studied with uh, Steve Stern. So that was my training, really, in, as a historian of Latin America. So while at Madison, you, you began what would become your first book, Gendered Compromises, which placed the state... Chilean state's regulation of family and gender at the heart of how feminists, socialists, labor activists, social workers, and physicians negotiated with the popular front coalition governments in the 30s and 40s. Did any of the questions, inspirations, or concerns from that project lead you in the direction of your current book? Um, What really drew my attention as I was writing that book was the ways in which eugenics, which we usually think of as a racial ideology, was in fact very much used also to talk about the lower class and class relations in general. So in thinking about the relationship of class ideologies to racial ideologies, I immediately jumped on the idea of a culture of poverty, which, as many of your listeners probably know, is in the United States very much used to talk about racial issues. And it was through this, uh, my interest in ideas about the culture of poverty that I eventually came to the new project. So in the process of this research, Uh, In Chile and your discussion of the discourses of class and gender, what brought you to think about the issues of race and nation uh, across Latin America more broadly? Was there a particular archival find in Chile? Were there scholarly conversations after your first book? Well, in fact, in Chile, there was very little discussion about racial ideologies. I think one of the things that drew me to an interest in race is thinking about ideas of nationhood and the ways in which attempts to bring the lower classes into nationhood meant a kind of disciplinary discourse and a a set of medical discourses as well 
um, that were we might describe as biopolitical, you know, using the Foucauldian notion of biopolitics. And so there was definitely an interest there. But then I have to say, uh, my interest in questions around race really go back to my graduate school days where many of my colleagues were talking and thinking about race and my mentors were thinking about race. My first semester in graduate school was a, inter, uh, a seminar on race in, in the Americas that looked at Latin America and also the uh, literature on race and slavery in the United States. So that was very much also just part of what I was interested in. So you just mentioned uh, in the previous question how you had become interested in Oscar Lewis's idea of the culture of poverty, which continues to have a lot of purchase in the U.S. today. But the publication of this book was some 10 years uh, after the end of your, your current book, The Science and Race of, uh, Politics of Race. How did you get from being interested in Oscar Lewis to beginning uh, an examination of anthropologists and social scientists in the U.S. and Mexico? Well, of course, Oscar Lewis was himself an anthropologist. So the interest in anthropology, I think, started there. Um, as I started to write on anthropology, Lewis, and the culture of poverty in the 1960s, I really felt like I needed some of the background to understand what was going on. So really, my current book, which goes up to 1950, um, was what I needed to figure out, I thought, in order to uh, understand Oscar Lewis much better. But basically, one of the things that I found out is that the first time that Oscar Lewis went to Mexico, it was as a representative of the Inter-American Indigenous Institute. And the Inter-American Indigenous Institute had been the brainchild of uh, many Mexican indigenistas or scholars of indigeneity people interested in indigenous policy. It had been their brainchild and the brainchild of John Collier, who was the U.S. Commissioner of Indian Affairs. So it was in tracing back Oscar Lewis's work in Mexico, which eventually led to the culture of his culture of poverty formulation that I became interested in a very much broader series of exchanges between the United States and Mexico, which were intellectual exchanges, but they were also exchanges among policymakers. So diving from Chile into Mexico and the United States and this new 20th century notion of kind of inter-American or inter-Americanism, pan-Americanism, you began in Chile, you moved to Latin America more broadly, and then began tackling the historiography of Mexico in the United States. Many scholars become experts in a country or region and spend their careers deepening that bond. What motivated you to take that transnational leap? And what challenge did you face wading into those new countries as historiographies? Yeah, it definitely was a leap. I have to say I had the uh, example in graduate school of having worked with mentors who had also switched from one country to another. So that allowed me to see that it was possible to do so. I knew it would be quite a bit of work. I think partially what I was thinking when I, well, initially, actually, I started off thinking that I would do a study that included Chile, Mexico, Brazil and the United States. And my idea there was to track a broader series of exchanges among countries with different kinds of racial configurations, including Latin American countries that had very different racial configurations. But well, that was a big chunk to chew off. But mostly I abandoned that idea because when I started to do the research from the book, I realized that many of the exchanges among the Latin American countries were routed through the United States. And so ironically, a, a project that would have considered more Latin American countries would have been more U.S. focused. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to write uh, a book that really made, put, made the U.S. At, at sort of situated it at the apex and so eventually I settled on doing this book that looked at Mexico and just Mexico and the United States, where the intensity of exchanges were, of course, very um, great. And so as I started to delve into the literature on Mexico, I really 
had to concentrate on just looking at Mexico from the perspective of racial and policies and indigenous policies. In other words, I couldn't really tackle all of Mexican history, nor could I tackle the really vast historiography on the United States. So I tried to just focus in on the time periods and the issues that I was most interested in and really try and dialogue with that kind of literature. And Mexicans had written very extensively on um, indigenous policy. So there was a, a body of literature there to kind of dialogue with. So the science and politics of race is divided into two parts. Uh, Part one is entitled Science and Nation in an Age of Evolution and Eugenics, 1910 to 1934. In your previous answer, you mentioned different racial configurations within Latin American countries between them and in relation to the United States. Would you mind talking a little bit about the racial configurations you encounter in the U.S. and Mexico in the early part of your book? One thing that I was trying to do in the book is to examine some longstanding ideas that we have about racial configurations in Latin America versus racial configurations in the United States. So one of the things that we're very used to hearing both within academia in books and just more broadly is that racial ideas in Latin America and racial ideologies are more fluid, whereas in the United States, racial ideologies are more stark. And rather, this has been a really longstanding debate in the scholarship on Latin America, going back at least to Frank Tannenbaum's book in the 1940s, and really probably dates to the 19th century, maybe earlier than that. And people have gone back and forth and said, yes, this is true. No, this is true. Many people in Latin America, especially more recently and since the 1960s, I would say, have rejected the idea that Latin America is more racially democratic or that um, there's a greater racial mobility or ability for people to move across races in Latin America because they have really stressed that there is enduring racism in Latin America. But rather than weigh in on those debates, what I was trying to do in my book was to ask why the debates had been configured that way and the kinds of how those debates themselves helped configure ideas about what race was and how it functioned in each of those countries. So while I do note a lot of differences between ideas about race in Mexico and ideas about race in the United States, I also want to chart really the diversity of views that exist in both countries. And I want to foreground some of the ways in which in the United States, there have also been conceptions of race and ideas about how race functions that are very similar to ideas that have um, existed in Latin America. I also wanted to point out the ways in which the very idea of race and race as a subject of scholarship and scholarly attention has created links within North and South America. In other words, it created a kind of vocabulary that anthropologists, sociologists, economists, political scientists in Mexico, in the United States, and in other countries could use to help talk to each other. So although oftentimes they might stress differences, it also created links. Let me rephrase. Maybe uh, looking at a kind of scholarly approaches to race, anthropologists, social scientists, uh, maybe a new place to think about where notions of race racial difference come from, given the kind of current focus on the border or uh, criminality. Um, what what does it mean to look at scholars and their race, uh, debates over racial categories as opposed to kind of subaltern subjects? Well, in understanding how scholars developed their ideas about race, I'm interested in both how, what they bring to it, but also what they discover as they go out. So This is marked in both the United States and Mexico in a period in which oftentimes indigenous communities or reservations in the case of the United States were not that accessible to elites in Mexico City, New York, or Washington, D.C. 
So for many of the people who studied indigeneity and indigenous peoples in Mexico and the United States, this was really going to the Pueblos or going up into the Tarahumara, going to the Maya areas in the Yucatan was very eye-opening to them. They discovered things about their country and they went to places that very few non-Western people had been to or that certainly um, had not been part of what was, hadn't been part of academic studies in those countries. And I think in many cases, and I would say particularly in the case of Mexico, although this may also have been the case in the United States, um, they, what they saw changed how they viewed race. And um, in particular, I think in the case of Mexico, Mexican scholars understood that there wasn't, that the the formulas regarding racial assimilation um, perhaps didn't fit in quite the ways that they thought when they first went out into the field. And that the cultural contact, which was one of the primary focuses of um, these scholars, they wanted to understand some of the rules and some of the ways in which cultures interacted with one another. Um, but they discovered in many cases that some of the ideas that they brought with them were perhaps not really that accurate. And in particular, ideas about assimilation, Mexicanization, Americanization, that those processes might not move forward in the way that people had thought that they did. In other words, many times people thought that there would be kind of an upward trajectory or an evolution or that people would adapt to national cultures. And what many of these scholars started to see is that cultural processes weren't really as straightforward as they had thought. In other words, people could adopt certain aspects of a culture and reject others. And that people could be modern, in fact, in different ways, right? So, for example, in the case of Mexico, that people could adopt certain food ways that were European food ways, native peoples might, but they could continue to speak native languages or perhaps the other way around. And these were realizations that the people I study came to because they came into contact with indigenous people. So I do think that their fieldwork experiences were um, integral to their policymaking and to their writing and to their scholarship more generally. Would you mind maybe walking us through the lives and trajectory of some of the subjects of your book? Uh, Manuel Gamio, John Collier, and Laura Thompson, perhaps? Sure. Well, Gamio has been amply written about by Mexicanism and people interested in Latin American scholarship because he had extensive contacts with U.S. scholars. So he's really, um, many people have looked at his contacts with the United States. He studied with Franz Boas in New York City. But one of the interesting things that I came upon as I was researching this book is that, in fact, it was Gamio did not go to the United States because he was interested in acquiring a U.S. education. In fact, it was Franz Boas who recruited Gamio because Boas wanted to go to Mexico to understand and to set up a school of Americanist anthropology that would be situated in Mexico City. So it was really Boaz's interest in Mexico rather than uh, Gamio's interest in the United States that brought those two together initially. So Gamio uh, studies for a couple of years. He actually studies with um, an archaeologist, Seville at Columbia, more than with Boaz only per se. He goes back to Mexico and he almost immediately um, becomes involved in the policy-making circuit. So he is responsible for actually setting up the first Mexican institution that's devoted to Native people. And he really insists that in order to study 
uh, excuse me, in order to make policy about Native people, you have to know them. So you need ethnography in order to do policy making. And this was one of his really key insights. He also continues to be up till the 1950s and uh, uh, well, certainly through the 1950s to be a key interlocutor for uh, North Americans who go to Mexico and to be a translator of U.S. concepts for Mexican audiences. Um, he was a very politically savvy in terms of the kind of micro politics, I would say, of the of academia as well as national politics. So he really made himself um, someone who uh, was at the center of these north south exchanges. So he's a really important figure in my in my work. John Collier is to me a really fascinating figure and a really important figure in understanding policymaking towards Native people in Latin America and in the United States. And in contrast to Gamio, he has been written about very little, which to me is and was, as I was researching this book, incredibly surprising. He's a fascinating figure. His father had been the mayor of Atlanta. He worked in on the Lower East Side in New York City initially. Well, I should say, he, he initially traveled. He didn't have a standard university education, but he was kind of a self-educated man. He studied with a tutor. He traveled in Europe where he attended the lectures on psychology of Pierre Janet, who was one of the progenitors of psychoanalysis. Then he came back to the United States to work at, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where he was involved in immigrant education. And many of, I think, his ideas about ethnicity, assimilation, the United, uh, the way culture works and so on were developed when he was working on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. He also there developed and was very interested in ideas about leadership, social psychology. He was a reader of Lester Ward Frank, who was the first president of the American Sociological Association. So really the interface of psychology and sociology were very much um, what he was interested in. And he understood that in terms of how ideas are transmitted. So um, after working on the Lower East Side for quite a few years, he went to work in California on Americanization campaigns, had um, some some troubles, I would say, political troubles in California with some more conservative politicians. And then he had been part of um, a group in New York that included people like Mabel Dodge Lujan, who had at this point moved out to the Southwest. And so it was on a visit to her that he first be really became aware of Native issues. And for him, this all began um, when he was visiting the Pueblos. And as he visited the Pueblo, he was shocked, actually, to see how much of their Native culture had been preserved. And he wondered why that had been. So he started studying this. This was really his first foray into Native issues. And as he studied the Pueblo, he, of course, found that they had spent much of the colonial period under Spanish rule. So this was how he got interested in Mexico. He was interested in, in, in how under in, in colonial New Spain, the Hopi, excuse me, the Pueblo had kind of been able to hold on to their culture and he has attributed it to forms of Spanish colonial rule that permitted Native people to continue to speak their languages and have their cultures. So that was sort of his first foray into Latin America, into Mexico specifically, or New Spain, if you will. And then um, from there, he very quickly became involved in U.S. Native American affairs. And he was the executive director of an organization that was lobbying against the Bursum Bill and the process of allotment that had taken place in the United States. So that was sort of John Collier's beginnings um, and it was very surprising that he was uh, elected or selected to be FDR's New Deal Commissioner of Native Affairs um, because he was very much an outside and kind of considered to be um, pretty radical in terms of his 
views on Native affairs and that he had been objecting very strenuously to what had been up till that point, the U.S. policy toward Native people. So that's John Collier. Um, He becomes commissioner of Native affairs. He takes contacts with um, the Mexican indigenistas. And one of the things he learns from Gamio and some of the other indigenistas, in fact, also Moises Science, who had been one of the key people in the 1930s working on indigenous issues in Mexico. One of the things he learns from them is that state policy has to be grounded in anthropology and and ethnography. So when he becomes commissioner of Indian Affairs, one of the first things he does is to take contact with anthropologists and to set up a unit of applied anthropology within the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So that Applied Anthropology Unit actually ends up being closed down pretty quickly, and Collier encounters quite a bit of opposition to his program in the U.S. Congress. Um, And although he's able to accomplish quite a bit in the early years of the Indian New Deal, um, by the 1940s, I would say, probably by 1939, his funding is diminished and he's really not able to do as much as he had been in the in his first years. And it's at that moment that he becomes more engaged in trying to set up the Inter-American Indigenous Institute and begins traveling more re- uh, regularly to Mexico. And it's around this same time that he meets Laura Thompson, who's a third character in my book. And I think you had wanted me to, to, to talk a little bit about her as well. Laura Thompson was also was an anthropologist. She was born and raised in Hawaii and had begun to study at Radcliffe for her graduate degree, but felt that her the Harvard professors who were training there were a bit too sexist. So she moved from Radcliffe to the University of California, which had a reputation at that time of being more friendly to women anthropologists. And in fact, many of the more famous women anthropologists of that generation were trained at the University of California. She does her degree there and she meets um, an graduate student in German, and she marries him and travels to Germany. And this was really the moment in which Hitler was on the rise in um, in Germany. And she has a hard time in Germany. Uh, her husband has a kind of mental breakdown. And so eventually she comes back to the United States. She divorces him in Reno and she goes back home to her parents' house in Hawaii. And then she does some work on uh, Guam, on the island of Guam. She works at the Bishop Museum in Hawaii. And at the same time, she travels to Japan and she becomes very concerned with the rise of fascism, what she sees in Japan and also what she had seen in Germany. So she um, talks to some of her people in her anthropological network, and they tell her that um, John Collier, that she should go to Washington, D.C. and speak to John Collier. So um, she does that. Um, They hit it off immediately. They both had an interest in the ways in which colonialism had changed Native societies and were interested in seeing what and how Native peoples would uh, would preserve parts of their culture and their heritage and, uh, within modern societies. These were shared interests that they had, so they uh, immediately hit it off, and um, they come up together with a research project that they um, convinced some colleagues at the University of Chicago to carry out with them. And eventually some colleagues in the Inter-American Indigenous Institute, which is the Indian Education Administration and Personality Project. That was uh, the official title of it. They often referred to it just as the Indian Personality Project. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So one thing that's so interesting about these three uh, individuals is that to step back and think back about race and nation, in much of Latin America, uh, particularly places like Mexico and Peru, there is a big upsurge in the populist moment of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s of reconciling with indigenous peoples, the colonial past and inheritance. In the U.S., we think much less kind of popularly, but uh, about the relationship between Native Americans and indigenous peoples and nationalism. Even the Capitol Rotunda, you know, near UNTC, uh, begins with Cortez and Moctezuma. Um, so could you talk a little bit about the relationship between indigenismo in Mexico and populism and Native Americans in the U.S., like the Indian New Deal? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So from the perspective of Latin America, most of the nationalist leaders from the moment of independence forward saw themselves as breaking with the Spanish colonialism that they said had kept pe indigenous people down. So they characterized colonial rule as very oppressive and saw themselves as national leaders as bringing native people, but also formerly enslaved people into a national community. They accepted from the beginning that this national community would be a mixed race community. They worried about whether that would work or not. Um, they were often very elitist and favored European country, but they realized that um, the question of race was a central and of, of, of how races might get along and how races would evolve would be central issues for their countries. However, one of the interesting things that I found in researching my book was that the Mexican indigenistas actually claimed part of the Spanish colonial heritage, not that part that I've just referred to, but they claimed the Spanish colonial ethnographers. So they looked back to a series of men, they were all men, from the colonial era who had studied native civilizations, who had learned native languages, and who had often um, created vast works that preserved or sought to preserve the native heritage, um, men like, for example, Sahagún. So in the aftermath of the Mexican Revolution, for example, um, as the Mexican state tried to think about how it would educate native people who had formerly not had access to education, um, they developed programs for educating indigenous people. And the institution that was in charge of this, which was the Secretaría de Educación Pública, or SEP, actually had pictures of these colonial era friars hanging in their office. So there was kind of an, an effort on the part of the indigenistas to recover this. And John Collier immediately latched onto this. And he um, did so um, because he had also been thinking about the way in which colonial powers ruled over native people. So if we sort of think back to the 1920s, which is when much of this thinking is taking shape, you know, this is the age of high imperialism in Europe. And Collier had been reading about imperialism in uh, Europe. And in particular, um, he had been reading about indirect colonial rule. And he was drawn to some aspects of indirect colonial rule because he felt that they worked through rather than against native cultures. So in he had published, for example, a short uh, essay on the, the Congo. And he had done this before he traveled to Mexico. So he, you know, and so what he heard in Mexico from the indigenistas about colonial ethnography really dovetailed with the ideas about colonial rule that he was learning from from some uh, some of his readings that he was doing on the British Empire. 
And and so, you know, in some ways we often think of um, the effort to, um, or certain kinds of respect toward Native people as being antithetical to colonialism. But what I found interesting there is that they saw some aspects of colonialism in, in a different light and that they, in fact, recognized some continuities between colonialism and nationalism, which is, I think, you know, something that some of the literature on settler colonialism now, although from a very different perspective, is also coming to a kind of similar conclusion, right? To to kind of add threads to this story of populism, we've talked a little bit in this discussion and certainly in the book about social science, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about scientific thought at this moment. Your book's not bracketed by the beginning and end of World War II, but certainly um, Nazi eugenic policy and the destruction of World War II looms large in in international thinking about race. So maybe if you could talk a bit about science. One of the things we have to recognize about really the interwar period and then uh, World War II is that what people knew about science, about, uh, excuse me, about race, the scientific knowledge of race was really quite different from what we know today. And in particularly, the mechanisms of heredity were not at all clear. Um, And so especially in the 19-teens and 20s and into the 30s, um, the biology of race is uh, really a question mark for many of the um, academics, even the biologists who are working on these issues. And one of the reasons that many um, U.S. scholars want to turn to uh, Latin America is because they see it as kind of a natural laboratory, if you will, for understanding what happens when races mix, right? What kind of um, characteristics are passed down and what kind of characteristics tend to fade away. At the same time, um, and scholars of Latin American history, I think, are quite aware of this, but often in U.S. history, there's less awareness of it. There wasn't a strict dividing line between biology and culture. So there were many ways in which um, the interest in race was also an interest in culture. I mean, we often think of race as being only about biology or as being based in ideas about biological difference. But both in the United States and Mexico, the line between biology and culture was often not that sharp. And one of the manifestations of this, for example, is interest in questions around diet. So, you know, people wondered how what people ate influenced their physical health and whether or not that might be passed down to their children. Um, So they also felt that a kind of strong and vigorous race would require things like hygiene and attention to hygiene. And that was the case both in the United States um, and in um, Mexico. So especially in the interwar years and even through World War um, II, there's a lot of questions about race that are kind of hanging in the air. Um, At the same time, World War II definitely um, pushes, not World War II, I would say the rise of Nazism really pushes academics away from race and towards culture. So we see again in both countries that there is increasingly a turn towards understanding differences between different groups as cultural differences, um, as well as uh, perhaps also biological differences. And one of the things that I was quite interested in and uh, discovered as I was doing the research for this book that um, Codado Gini, an Italian who was interested in Latin and was one of the founders of what was called the Latin brand of eugenics, had traveled to Mexico in the 1930s. And he was also interested um, in 
understanding racial mixture and racial isolation, how races come about through a process of ethnogenesis through geographic isolation. Um, and he, like the Mexicans, believed that mixed races could be stronger than pure races. Um, and he thought that Mexico was a good context in which to study some of these problems, although he also was studying some European populations at the same time. Um, but again, here, the issue was not a genetic or hereditary difference so much as questions around intermixture, intermarriage, isolation, and so on. So those are some of the, uh, I would say, some of the threads surrounding race that I am following through the book. To even further complicate the thread around race and indigeneity that you've just discussed, part of what you're wrestling with is the question of economic development. You begin the book with Stuart Chase's study of think comparing a town in the Midwest and in Mexico and wrestling with pre-industrial and development. So how does the issue of economic development both complicate and add to scholarly thought and issues of science and race? Right. This was um, particularly the case, I would say, in Mexico, where the Mexican government was very intent on a process of bringing modernization to all rural areas. And that included both peasant people, mixed race peasants, and people who would have identified themselves as being indigenous. And so the Mexicans very much wanted, and I would say this is a pretty much across the board, to integrate Native people into a modern economy. And that meant, well, on the one hand, they might speak, continue to speak their Native languages, but they should also um, learn to speak and read and write Spanish. But even more importantly, they should produce for the market and be able to consume for the market. And they, they very much saw the integration of indigenous people into the marketplace as necessary to Mexico's global development. And I would say, in fact, that they often made the argument to the United States that by integrating indigenous people into um, a national marketplace, they would also create a market for the United States. So this was very much on the agenda of um, the Mexican indigenistas. But at the same time, there was less interest in other aspects of in Native culture or less interest in modernizing those aspects. So very often we see Mexican indigenistas saying, well, you know, if they want to visit a traditional healer, that's really, we don't really care about that. If they want to speak their Native language, well, that's fine, too. Um, and in fact, maybe we should write some nutrition books in native languages so that they're more accessible because what we want is strong and healthy bodies that are going to be strong and healthy producers for the nation. Um, so often there was a divorce between um, ideas about economic development and ideas of sort of assimilationists. Um, at the same time, that was that was an argument they had to make because in the minds of most people, economic development would be associated with white European culture, right? So in order to um, separate out some aspects of indigenous lifeways from economic development, um, that they really had to kind of change the way people were thinking about what modernization and what modernity might be. I don't know how successful they were. I think in some ways they were successful. I'm interested also, even if they weren't successful in kind of making that point and integrating it into, in fully into state policymaking, um, I, I want us to sort of um, grasp onto that because I think it um, gives us some models for thinking about the diverse ways in which different social scientists and, in fact, different Native groups have established their relationship to economic development and modernity in general. One final question about the book. So 
What's so fascinating and th- something I appreciate so much about your book was how you wrestle with people whose scholarly works and actions could, as is often done, be dismissed today as racist, backwards, or pseudoscientific. Uh, yet you write that the views and actions of these individuals could not escape prevailing paradigms and practices, but they're indispensable because they constituted ethical responses to perceived injustices and attempts to forge a partial consensus. So. At the heart of your story, do you see this, as you reflect on these individuals, a tragic tale of social reform gone awry? Or what, do you, what kind of legacy do you think of these, these scientists and, and experts? Yeah, in some ways, I do think it is a kind of tragic tale. I do, as, as you notice, focus quite a bit in the book on individuals. But my, my kind of take on that is that those individuals, we can use those individuals in a way as um, as a way into broader cultural understandings regarding race. In other words, I don't think that they um, are separate from the times in which they lived, from the disciplines in which they were trained, from, oh, uh, from their family histories. Now, all of that is sort of influencing them. Um, and many of these scholars... And many of even the icons of anti-racism, when we look at them, you know, from the lens of today, we see troubling aspects to their thought and their ways of thinking. However, we can also rescue certain aspects of them. And I don't want to fully condemn these authors or simply label them as racist and uh, kind of bury their work, because I think that implies that somehow I am in a position to judge them or that I'm less, that I am the kind of neutral observer who can pass judgment on those people from the past. And that's really not the way I want to approach the past, right? Um, I, of course, and I do say in the book, there are many problematic aspects, many aspects that we could today could label racist to the thinking of these scholars. They were not able to extricate themselves from ideas of modernity and whiteness and thinking that certain ways of living and being were better than other ways. And yet at the same time, they were open to learning from the people they came into contact with. And in the broader context of the societies in which they lived, they were in different ways trying to take actions that they felt and probably that many indigenous people felt would also ameliorate the conditions in which they lived. So that's sort of the approach I want to take to uh, toward or sort of the way I want to approach these And of course, that builds on a lot of work that's already been done that has pointed out many of the problematic ways in which these scholars have approached race in the past, you know, the past scholarship. Well, Karen, thank you. We've taken up a lot of your time. One last question. What are you working on today? Well, now I am going back to the questions around the culture of poverty that initially launched me into this book. Um, So I want to go back to Oscar Lewis's work and to write a book that really traces some of the strands that led to his culture of poverty formulation and to some of the debates that it spurred both in Mexico and in the United States. So one of the things I am quite interested in exploring in this book is um, the personality project that I mentioned to you because Oscar Lewis was in charge of coordinating the Mexican aspects of that personality project. And he was chosen to do this, not just because of his anthropological background, but also because his wife, Ruth Maslow Lewis was a psychologist and she was in charge of conducting much of the psychological testing that was part of this research and that was aimed at sort of understanding the psychic effects of the clash between Euro-Mexican, Euro-US culture and indigenous culture. So that was the question that structured this 
um, project and they administered a series of Rorschach's tests and uh, different kinds of psychological tests to try and engage, uh, try and gauge the effects of modernity on indigenous people. And it was through that work that Oscar Lewis uh, first went to Mexico and he worked in an indigenous village uh, in the state of Cuernavaca, Tepotzlan. He eventually followed those uh, migrants from that town of Tepotzlan to Mexico City. And it was there that he first, in as he studied those migrants in Mexico City, that he first began to develop his culture of poverty formulation. One of the interesting aspects of um, the development of that notion is that he encountered a good amount of negative feedback from his Mexican colleagues because they felt that he had portrayed the Mex Mexico City's poor as um, being just too uncouth, too um, dirty, and that this shed an unfavorable light on Mexico in general. And so many of his uh, Mexican counterparts said, why don't you study a poor family in the United States? And this is eventually what led Oscar Lewis to study Puerto Rico. So um, he initially considered studying a uh, black family in uh, New York City or another northern city on, in the United States, but he eventually settled on the idea of studying Puerto Ricans on the island and on Mexico City. Um, and that led to his award-winning book, La Vida, um, which was looked at uh, Puerto Rican families and the culture of poverty. That was the title of his book and that uh, eventually um, brought him a lot of trouble and disgrace as many people started to see the culture of poverty formulation as um, hiding racist views. So that's sort of a little bit of the traje trajectory that I want to look at in this new work. And I'm particularly interested again, you know, and this brings us back to where we started in this interview on, I'm interested in how ideas about economics development and class feed into ideas about race. So when Lewis wrote about the culture of poverty in Mexico, it was literally about the urban poor. There was very little, if anything, any mention of race, um, although there was certainly mention of culture in his, in his initial formulation. So why is it that when that gets brought back into the United States, it's immediately culture is immediately read as being about race? That's sort of the one of the issues that I want to explore in this new work. So I'm really um, I've published a little bit on this already, and I'm very anxious to get back to um, looking at that. That sounds like a great project. Really exciting. Well, I want to thank you, Karen, for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation um, and take care. Thank you. I enjoyed speaking to you, Jesse. <laughs>